Well, in the youth Sunday school class uh, where I teach, uh, we start each morning talking about how our weeks have been. We do something called um, highs and lows, um, which just going across, going around the room, each person saying what the best part of their week was, their high, and then they then say what was the worst part, or the least fun part of their week, um, their low. It's a great time to hear both um, the, the good and the ugly of what's going on in our lives. It's also a great time for us to be able to um, pray for each other, know what's going on in each other's lives. Highs usually include getting to go somewhere exciting, maybe Florida, uh, family vacation, having a, a family cookout on the weekend. Lows usually include some stressful or difficult situation, maybe a, a Spanish test that's coming up, um, maybe feeling of being overwhelmed uh, when it comes to work or finding a job. As Christians, if tomorrow someone were to ask you at work, what was the high point of your week? There's one event that should regularly and frequently top our list. You know, as good as having a cookout with friends on Friday night is, there's something even better. As good as getting the promotion at work is, there's something else that can top the list. And you're actually, you and I are participating in that event right now. The weekly meeting of God's people to worship Him together, to hear faithful gospel preaching, to serve alongside one another, give of ourselves in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we come together before God, as people indwelt with the Spirit of God, is there a certain way we ought to approach Him? Does it really matter what I say? Does it really matter what I sing? Do I just do what feels right? The text we're going to look at this morning will help to answer some of these questions. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may find it strange that a group of people would get together once a week and study a book that was written thousands upon thousands of years ago. You may also find it strange that we sing songs out of a little booklet that we sit silently in prayer for extended periods of time, and even that we give our money away. My prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will use these words this morning to show you just how awesome and true this God is that we Christians worship, and that He also is worthy of all of your worship as well. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible open, if you're able to even look back at chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, we'll see who wrote these words that we're going to read. I'll read verse 1 just quickly. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it's these words of the preacher that we read together in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 1. 
says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. These are the words of the Lord. My hope and prayer this morning is that through these words, God would fill this room with great awe and wonder every time we gather to worship him. In verse 1, the preacher gives some instruction, and then he explains that instruction. Look at it with me in verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. He tells us when you go to the house of God, when you come before God and worship, be careful. Guard your steps. Where is this house of God the author refers to? Well, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant with the nation of Israel, God's house was the tabernacle, and then later on, the temple. This was where God's special presence dwelt with his people, where the people could come, offer sacrifices to him, pray to him, worship him together. But now in our day, the house of God is not an actual building. It's not a special place. God does not primarily dwell in a room, but he dwells within and inside believers. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. So when Christians gather together, God is there with them. Church, God is with us even right now. So the preacher is telling the worshiper, he's telling you and me that we ought to be careful to stop and to think about what we're doing, that when we come together like this, we are entering the very presence of God. This is similar to when you or I may be invited to someone's house that we know that's important. Uh, For example, you may be invited to the house of your boss for dinner, uh, to meet with his family, maybe even other coworkers will come along. Even though it's somewhat of an informal gathering, you still come with your best behavior. You are careful on how you eat. You're careful how you talk, what you say, what you do. And you do this because you want to honor and respect your boss. You want to honor and respect his home and his family. In a similar but even greater way, We ought to recognize whose presence we are in when we gather together. We come before the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the God 
who made all the stars in the sky, the God who formed the highest mountain and the deepest sea. It's his presence that we are in. And like Moses in Exodus 3, when God confronts him in the burning bush and tells him to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground, church, may we also bow our faces in great awe and wonder when we gather together in worship. The preacher in the rest of verse 1 and in verse 2 and tells us how we ought to guard our steps before God. He says, verse in, first in verse 1, if you look there with me, to draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. What does it mean when he says to draw near to listen? I think it means that as we gather together to worship God, we ought to first listen and hear what God says. How do we hear what God says? Well, church, it's in his word. It's in his book. We guard our steps before him by reading, hearing his word, listening to what it says especially in how we ought to approach him in worship. This is one big reason why we try to read so much scripture, so much of God's word out loud in our services. If you even think back to the beginning of this service, after the announcements, Pastor Dave read from Psalm 28, God's words calling us to pray to him, to plead for him, to hear us, to help us, to be with us, to guide us. Then we prayed. After that, Sandy read from Psalm 29, God's words calling us to worship him, to ascribe to him glory and strength, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. Then we worshiped. We sang loud and bold praise to him. We sang praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. We sang, let the amen sound from his people again. We sang, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Church, we must hear and listen to God's word together. It is he that is leading us in worship, calling us to stand in awe and in wonder of who he is. Now, what does the preacher mean when he says to listen is better than offering a sacrifice of fools? As I said earlier, Ancient Israelites would come to the tabernacle or the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And there were various reasons why they'd do this. Um, often, if they had committed sin, they would come and offer a sacrifice to God. 
Also, if they wanted to give an offering of thanksgiving, they would come and offer a sacrifice to God. They would bring an animal and they would kill it, sacrificing it to God in his house. So how could this act, how could this sacrifice be foolish? Well, in the book of Malachi, we get a picture of what this type of sacrifice looks like. Now, again, when someone brought an animal before the Lord, they were supposed to bring the best of the herd, their best bull, their best lamb, an animal without blemish, one that's not lame or sick or blind. Then Malachi chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, it is the last book in the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew in the New Testament. In chapter 1 of Malachi, God curses the nation of Israel because of their sacrifices, because they brought before him blemished and lame animals as sacrifices. He says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Fools assume that just because they offer something to the Lord, their sins will be forgiven. So they ignore his word and bring wrong sacrifices to him. Even back in Ecclesiastes 5.1, the preacher says that fools don't know that what they're doing is evil. They don't know or just don't care what they're offering to God. You can see that even in what we just read in Malachi. The people respond to God asking, how have we despised your name? How have we polluted your table? They think they're doing the right thing. Oh, what a dreadful and sobering thought that we could come before God and worship thinking that we're doing the right thing, but really we're doing evil. I think the preacher is leading us to see that it's not just what we do before God that matters, but how we do it. We don't bring animal sacrifices to God anymore because Jesus paid the final sacrifice for our sins on the cross. But God still commands us to bring him something. In Romans 12, God commands us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. 
God tells us to offer our very lives to him. That means that everything we do, everything we say, everything we think ought to be in worship and in praise to God. So that means what you do on Saturday night is just as important to God as what you do on Sunday morning. What we bring to God on Sunday morning as we worship together ought to be an outpouring of how we have been worshiping God throughout our lives in the week. If you live, gone throughout your week disobeying God, being short and impatient with your coworkers, and you come to worship on Sunday not concerned that the God that you have been defending all week is who you're meeting with. You set yourself up to offer a foolish sacrifice. But if you have lived for God in your week, loving, caring for others, being obedient to him, not perfectly without sin, but seeking God's ways, when you come to worship him on Sunday, you are ready to hear God's word to confess your sin to him and to worship him with all of your heart. The preacher here in these verses of Ecclesiastes tells us to be careful, to guard our steps by standing in awe of God and his word, by avoiding the sacrifice of fools, by bringing to God holy and acceptable worship that characterizes our whole lives. Church, may this be a mark of our worship here at Calvary. The preacher then shows us in verse 2 and 3 a second way we should guard our steps. If you want to look there with me again, verse 2, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. In these verses, the sage gives us wise counsel on how we ought to use our words when we come before God. The beginning of verse 2, he gives us two parallel commands. He says, don't be rash with your words, nor let your heart be quick to speak before God. We saw back in verse 1 that it's better to listen, to draw near and listen to God, which if we do this, means that we will not rush in with our own words. This usually means that we're much more careful with what we say when we actually do begin to talk. This is true even in our own relationships with each other, right? If we are rash and quick to speak with our neighbor, that will usually lead to anger and to strife. James gives similar wisdom in James chapter 1 when he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So when we come before God and worship, we ought to be careful and not careless with what we say. 
to not be rash or quick to utter words before him. Along with this, at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, the preacher says, Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Not only should we be slow to speak, but we should also keep our words to a minimum. If we ramble on and on with our words, whether in prayer or even in song, without much thought or care to what we're saying, the writer of Ecclesiastes calls us fools. Verse 3 is a proverb that means that just as dreamy and restless sleep comes to those who are overworked, who are stressed, so many words come from a mouth of a fool. Both of these commands, being slow to speak and letting our words be few, are both big reasons why we try to be very careful in the words that we use in our services on Sunday morning. We even have these booklets that we type up and print out and use in the service so that you and I can see and know what we're saying before God. Pastor Dave and I will often even write out different things that we're going to say in the service, whether it be uh, pastoral prayer, uh, moments between scripture reading and song. At the end of the service, when it comes to the dedication of offering and the benediction, this principle also speaks to what kind of words we sing together. We want to pick songs that have the best words, words that are centered on God's word, that tell of who he is and what he has done for us in the gospel, words that lead us to encourage one another to greater faith. Church, what we say, what we sing matters. Some may be thinking right now, man, Paul sure is getting pretty technical and pretty specific with all of this. I mean, I get that worship is important, that what we do on Sunday mornings matters, but does it really matter this much? Well, in the midst of these instructions, the preacher tells us again the reason why this is all so important why this is so vital for us. He says in the middle of verse 2, For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. The reason why we must not be careless in our worship is because of who we are worshiping. We come to worship God. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is infinite. We are finite. He is eternally existing. We are but a vapor in the cloud. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. When we recognize who we are coming before, when we realize who is in the room with us, We respond in awe and in wonder because he is more glorious, more awesome than we can even begin to describe. 
Many of you know that my beautiful wife, Katie and I, met while studying abroad in Costa Rica while in college. Costa Rica is a relatively small country, and where we lived was pretty much in the middle. So on the weekends, a group of friends and us would try to explore and see different things in the country. One of the most incredible places that we went was a beach called Santa Teresa. And one of the most amazing things about this beach was that at night, there's a specific algae that is in the sand that when you step on it, it lights up. I remember going there and one night, um, going to the beach, seeing the water uh, had receded for several yards off the coast to where the sand was still wet and it was dark and you could see the stars as clear as could be above us, them reflecting on the ground beneath you. And then on top of that, wherever you stepped, the ground around you would light up. It was like being in a scene of a sci-fi movie, just like you're suspended in the sky with stars above you, stars beneath you, and everything lining up around you. It's one of those moments, maybe you've been in one of these, where you're in it, and you realize, I'm not going to be in a situation like this for a long time, if ever again, right? I remember being in this experience and being filled with such awe and amazement. But this amazing scene, this amazing piece of God's creation is so small and it cannot begin to compare with the glory, the greatness, and the power of the one who created it. He made each of those stars. He made the sea. He even made the tiny creatures that you step on and they light up. Not only is there a great divide between us and God because of his being the creator, the Bible tells us that there is something else that divides us, a divide that we cannot cross, a divide caused by our sin. We as humanity have rebelled against God, making ourselves his enemies under his just divine wrath. But the Bible also tells us that someone actually did cross this divide. God himself, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, died in our place on the cross, bearing the wrath of sin and punishment that we deserved. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I call you even now to place all of your hope, all of your trust in Jesus Christ and his death to cover your sins and his resurrection to give you new life. It is through this truth, it is through his spirit that he gives you that you are able to worship him as he commands and as he deserves. So what does this mean for us right now? What does this mean for us even as we continue to pray together and sing this morning? 
think it means at least two things. First, we need to come to worship with each other on Sunday mornings. If you look back at the verses throughout these words, the preacher assumes that the worshiper is coming before God. This means for us that we ought to prioritize the Sunday gathering of God's people, of coming before Him together. And as I said earlier, worshiping God with God's people, with our brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday, ought to be the high point of our week. That on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and Thursday, it's what we're looking forward to, what we're anticipating. That we're excited to join together with God's people in praise to our glorious God. And this isn't so we can check off some list of things that we need to do. But it's an event that serves to grow us in our faith, to connect us with other believers. Second, we must not be careless when we come to God in worship on Sundays. We must guard our steps by not being quick to speak, but drawing near to listen to what God says, recognizing who it is that we're meeting with. Underneath and foundational to the preacher's instructions in these verses is a concept, is the teaching of the fear of the Lord. In verse 7 of chapter 5, the writer says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. After surveying the meaninglessness and the vanity of life apart from God, the preacher concludes at the very end of the book in chapter 12, in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Church, May we gather together every Sunday and worship God in fear and in trembling in great awe and wonder of who He is. May we do that even now as we pray together.